Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is about Charles Mills and Emma Hartley, a young, fresh-faced couple forced into an early adulthood. Inexperienced in life and dogged by its stresses, When a baby was born, both were ecstatic. Only for Charles, his love abruptly stopped when his future was haunted by his past. Murder Marley's research using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 122, The Disposal of Harry Hartley. Today, I'm standing on the familiar footings of Denmark Street, WC2 one street north of the brutal stabbing by satanic child killer Edward Crowley, one street east of the suicide of boxer Freddie Mills, six doors west of Dennis Nilsson's job centre, and just a short hop from the tube stop where a blood-soaked spree killer was caught. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Denmark Street is an adult's playground. At 300 feet long, stretching from St. Giles Church to Charing Cross Road, these 30 assorted three-storey buildings are home to every big kid's dream, with coffee bars, vinyl stores and guitar shops. If you're a real kid, this place is boring. As once mummy's gone away to do all the important stuff, daddy drags you to his street, where this bloated baldy relives his youth by gelling up his last remaining hair follicle, letting his beer gut bulge out of his faded leather jacket, and flipping an arthritic V-sign to the pigs as his fingers fumble a painful rendition 
of the Sex Pistols classic, God Save the Queen. One such guitar shop stands at 23 Denmark Street. But more than a century ago, it was a family home. In 1900, at the last year of Queen Victoria's reign, life for children was hard. Seen as lucky, if you were given a basic education, the impoverished majority worked a six-day week by the age of 14, with many earning a pittance for piecework from the second they could stand. Married off early, many children had children when they were still only children themselves, and with no savings or pension, infirmity and old age would leave many singletons and spinsters with one retirement option, the workhouse. As just a young lad himself, Charles Mills had grown up fast. With very little family, all he wanted was to live a good life and to be loved. And in Emma Hartley, he found hope. But with so much stress placed upon such narrow shoulders, it's impossible to know whether he got scared, snapped, or was haunted by something in his past, and possibly his blood. As it was here, on Sunday the 18th of February 1900, outside of 23 Denmark Street, that something inside Charles Mills would force him to make a very rash decision that he would regret forever. The young short life of Charles Henry Mills began in poverty and ended in tragedy. Born in 1881 in the parish of St Giles, Charles was the eldest of three sons to Charles Henry Mills Sr., a labourer, and Alice Harriet Cotter, a washerwoman. As a small pale couple, Charles's parents worked hard to earn little. Struggling under the backbreaking grind of manual labour, like so many of the poorest in this festering metropolis, they drank to dull their pain. Soon enough, habit became a crutch, a crutch became an addiction, and swigging back great glugs of street gin, a backyard brew of food scraps, turpentine and urine, slowly their insides began to rot. As an average urchin, Charles didn't have a childhood. With tatty clothes and barely a square meal to sustain him each day, he resembled the saddest of ghosts, with pale skin, sallow cheeks and a bony torso. And being only an impish five foot three inches tall, as an even more pitiful sight, the cracked marble-like eyes of this nervous and delicate boy peep through the bent wire frames of his bottle-bottom spectacles under the jagged cutting of his pudding bowl fringe. As barely functioning drunks, with two more boys to feed and unable to pay for their lodgings, father was often an inmate at the debtor's prison as mother raised their three sons in the local workhouse. Cruelly described as a simple lad, Although painfully quiet, he worked hard 
and had learned to read and write. Raised fast, he ran errands to support his sozzled parents, for whom drink was now their sole dependent, and to feed and clothe his younger brothers. His childhood was a long-forgotten memory, as this faint slip of a lad was forced to be a man, and barely into his teens, the family's breadwinner. In 1895, age 14, Charles worked full-time as an errand boy at Woodfall and Kinder, a printer's at 76 Longacre in Covent Garden. Keen to work long days and nights, as much to earn as to escape his home life, he rose to the less junior position of Tinker's labourer, a printer's aide who ran copy to the clients for approval before it hit the presses. He worked hard, he was no bother, and he was never late, rude or abusive. After three years of employment and making a modest eight shillings a week, he was learning, earning and had a bright future ahead. With his parents insensible, incapable of work and now full-time residents at the St George's Workhouse, 17-year-old Charles funded a bed for him and his brothers at a lodging on Great Queen Street. And although he was prone to bouts of giddiness and headaches, perhaps owing to the printer's toxic inks or the deafening clank of the presses, he powered through his tiredness and the pain in the hope of leading a better life. And having seen its effect, he never turned to drink. With his life being tough, dirty and relentless, this lack of joy may have got the better of him. But then, he met Emma. Just like Charles, Emma Hartley was a local girl who was born and raised in the fringes of the rookery. Prior to the turn of the 1900s, Denmark Street was not a place of music, as being full of back-to-back -back rows of stables, workshops and slum houses. It echoed to the squeal of the slit throats of pigs reeked of the flayed flesh of the tannery, and any hope of sunlight was choked by the belching chimney stacks. As a lodging for 26 tenants, the front first floor room at 23 Denmark Street was home to the Hartley family. Similar in many ways to the Mills family, age 16, as the youngest of three sisters, Emma was sparsely educated had worked since infancy, and as a seamstress, she was a solid earner for the family. But their faith, not drink, had kept them strong. As a working-class girl at the dusk of the Victorian era, her life offered few options. And knowing that she would never escape her class, her status or her poverty, she was always looking for love. One day, maybe as he sat reading quietly, his oversized eyes magnified by thick lenses under a clumsily snipped fringe which was still crusted with the crumbs of an old suet pudding, she found and fell in love with Charles. How and where they met was never recorded, but together they seemed a perfect match. Being a dot of a girl, 
Emma was as undersized and scrawny as her tiny lover. With a tangled mess of bright red hair, pale skin, and a set of apple blossom cheeks, which sat on top of a skinny white body. She resembled the last match in a smoker's matchbox. As each other's first love, from the February of 1898, this inexperienced twosome was often seen in and around Soho, kissing and holding hands. And their future together looked certain. By the winter of 1898, with Charles earning an okay wage, finally sleeping in his own bed and being hopelessly in love with Emma, his turbulent little life seemed to have turned a corner. Only fate had other plans. And just as his future was looking good, his past came back to haunt him. November 1898 was bitterly cold. In his box-like lodging on Great Queen Street, breath had frozen the insides of his windows. But Charles was toasty warm. As snuggled in his beloved's arms, with their pale skin stuck together like pancakes, being young and amorous, well, the rest you can imagine. Being only a slight girl, her skills as a seamstress did well to hide her bump for the first six months. But by May 1899, being twice her width about her midriff, there was no hiding the impending baby. For Charles and Emma, the start of a family should have been a joyous moment. Only it wasn't. Angry at this horny little sprat, whose carnal lusts, he felt, had sullied his innocent little girl, Emma's father, William Hartley, screamed at Charles, struck him squarely on the chin, and banished him from ever seeing his daughter or entering their home, until he did the decent thing and married her. For Charles, although earning a pittance and struggling to save, that had been his whole plan. A wedding, a wife and a child, all living the kind of life he had always wanted to live, but never had. Only one thing would forever haunt the happiness of his future, and that was the sadness of his past. In July 1899, one month before the baby's birth, both of Charles's parents died in the workhouse. After a hard life, dulled by hard drinking, his father had died as a broken and bloated alcoholic. Bequeathed nothing but his father's debts, struggling to cope and still supporting his younger brothers who were barely earning enough to survive, this additional burden wasn't what plagued him the most. His mother had been sick for a very long time, some said since birth. Exacerbated by drink, Alice's epilepsy was untreatable. Committed twice to an asylum, she was always discharged, looking weary, beaten and lice-ridden, but she never got any better. Seeing visions and hearing voices, in later life she would rant and rave like a demented loon, 
until whatever illness she truly had had crippled her. One year earlier, he'd had to commit his Aunt Eliza to the Bedlam Asylum. She too had suffered from those same symptoms, which doctors believed were hereditary. Whether it was the stresses of life or the fear of his future, around that time, Charles began to change. Barely taking a day off sick, he was now prone to giddiness and often said that his head felt like it was burning. Gone was the thoughtful lad whose owl-like eyes silently read books. Only now, he was replaced by a skipping loon who bunked off work. As a timid boy, he got cheeky, coarse, and for no reason at all, he started to fight. And with his moods becoming blacker, in the presence of his shocked colleagues, this sweet little lad had threatened to drown himself in the Thames. No one could figure out what had happened to Charles Mills. But clearly, something had. That same month, as he grieved by an unmarked grave within the walls of the workhouse, where his parents had lived, died, and their bones were now buried, with William Hartley having disowned his own daughter, Charles rented his heavily pregnant girlfriend a one-roomed lodging at 13 Arthur Street. Being unwed, but too broke to marry, he did his best, but his best wasn't enough. On the 19th of August, 1899, unable to afford medical help at the hospital, little Harry Hartley was born in the squalid filth of the St Giles workhouse. An unholy hellhole where the desperate were punished for being poor, and where just 30 years earlier, a little baby called Charlie Chirgwin would freeze to death. Being the spit of both parents, baby Harry was a pale, undersized dot, with a round doughy belly, stick-thin limbs, and a shocking wisp of red hair, like a large question mark perched over his head. And just like Charles... Harry was a quiet boy who often sat in silence, thinking and quizzically blinking. As a proud father, Charles purchased his baby boy the best clothes he could buy. A blue frock, a white petticoat and a little white shawl. To support them both, he gave Emma a weekly allowance of three shillings a week. It wasn't much, but it was as much as he could afford given his tiny wage and his dad's debts. And with his little lamb having adopted a cough, a sniffle, and sometimes a shiver, with a simple cold in that era being a deadly killer, he paid his pennies for a doctor. Plagued by worry, overthinking every flinch, twitch and drool as any new parent would, and maybe seeing or hearing things which probably weren't even there, Charles was worried for his son, having been blessed with life, but burdened by a family curse.
January 1900 saw a new year, a new century, and a renewed promise of change and prosperity. But for this struggling little family, it would bring only misery and death. As was their habit, every Sunday afternoon, Charles, Emma and baby Harry visited her sister Harriet and husband Charles at their home on the Prince's Road in Lambeth, South London. On Sunday the 4th of January, as they all sat down to tea and cake, Charles was far from his usual self. Looking tired and short-fused, from the second he had arrived, he was desperate to leave with the insistence that Emma, the baby and himself go for a walk by the Thames. Rightly, Emma said no. So he sat in silence, the only sound being the muted mumbling of his thin lips as he vigorously rubbed his eyes. On Sunday the 4th of February, in that same room, at the same time, to the same people, Charles made the same request, which again Emma declined. Hearing a cough and seeing a single spot of mottled phlegm dot his child's cheek, he insisted he take the baby with him, but Emma said no, so he left alone. The winter wind was bitingly cold, the stone streets were icy sheets, and so vicious was the darkest season, even the turbulent River Thames had succumbed to the cold and frozen in patches. And as his perturbed mind raced as he paced, all he could think of was his boy, his blood, and his legacy. On Sunday the 11th of February, exactly one week before the unthinkable, as had happened many Sundays prior, a walk was mooted and rebuked. So an unusually restless Charles sulked as the family sat. His language had grown more foul of late, having recently mocked Emma's auburn hair by calling her a bleeding carroty cow. But he was never abusive or violent towards her. It was then that he began to light up a pipe, a habit he knew she disliked, especially as twice before he had burnt his mouth, and once, whilst leaning over the crib, a hot ball of tobacco had singed her baby's head. As any good mother would do, she knocked the unlit pipe from his lips. But picking it back up, he did something he had never done before. He threatened her, hissing, Mind you and the baby, don't go over the embankment tonight. And although a brief moment of tension, he apologised, and they both left on good terms. Across the following week, he waited outside her home on Denmark Street. And being unusually tearful and trembling, Emma couldn't tell what was wrong with Charles as he refused to discuss it. All he wanted was to see her and the baby. On Saturday the 17th of February, just one night before, 
after a calm, rational, and almost loving conversation. Again, Charles did something he had never done before. And with the baby still in her arms, he punched Emma in the face. He never said why he did it, and he never would. But something had made him snap. Sunday the 18th of February 1900 was a day written in the past which was destined to change their futures. With the bitter icy winds having not ceased since Christmas, as the cobblestone streets were deathly and any trickle of water had frozen solid, as was habit, taking a horse-drawn omnibus, Emma and the baby headed to her sister's only this time without Charles. Emma later stated, Our usual time to meet on Sundays was about 3.20, but he didn't go with me that day, as my brother-in-law had said no on account of my black eye. I didn't tell him that. I thought it would upset him, so I said that the baby wasn't very well. For once, the baby was fine, and his cough was gone. But Charles would know none of this. At 7.30pm, Charles stood against a lamppost outside of 23 Denmark Street as the fizzing electric arc lamp bathed his sallow face in a dull yellow glow. Having missed her at 3.20pm, being worried for the next four hours, and having waited for three hours more, as Emma and his baby hopped off the bus at 10.45pm. His haggard lips lifted a little as he saw them both approaching. Outside her door, in a hushed silence, Charles asked, Can I hold him? It was late. Too late. So Emma said, No, he's sleeping. Her black eye was still swollen and its pain was still fresh. But hearing his pleas, please, just for a minute, that's all. Seeing his eyes all cracked and red, with a teetering rim of tears hovering on his lower lids, and sensing the sadness within him, being just a boy himself, who had lost his own parents, not months, but maybe years before, she nodded and sighed, Okay, just for a bit. The last seven months had been tough on them both. And maybe, having realized his mistakes, the boy she still loved might actually do right, becoming a husband for her and a father for their son. Slowly, as she handed the baby over, Tightly holding this tiny tot in his fatherly arms, Charles leaned forward. His lips perched close as he softly kissed the little wisp of red hair on his son's sleeping head. Only this was not a goodnight kiss to his baby boy, but a goodbye.
with no warning. Gripping the snoozing bundle to his chest, Charles fled. Dashing past St. Giles' Church, with a skinny waif like Emma wailing behind him, chasing him as best she could, somewhere near the dizzying confusion of Seven Dials, she lost them. Howling all the way home, everyone she called searched the streets, his lodgings and his workplace. But Charles had vanished, and her baby was gone. For more than a mile, Charles ran until his bones shook. With his head red hot, his giddiness guiding his legs, and a voice reassuring him that what he was doing was right. As the squealing baby's head bobbed in his arms, he dashed down Endell Street, Compton Street, St. Martin's Lane and Villiers Street, until his feet hit the icy expanse of the embankment and the shallow snowy walls of the River Thames. No one saw him do it, but undeniably, he had. Without a second's thought, having hurled the tiny bundle towards a sleeting horizon, as it fell and its little body smacked hard on the frozen river, for a moment it lay there, helpless and alone, until slowly the ice cracked. Weighed down by a little blue frock, a white petticoat, and a woolen shawl, as the tiny pale baby sank deeper, abruptly its screams ceased. At 11.20pm, just moments later, 19-year-old Charles handed himself in at the Bow Street police station. Admitting his guilt, he assisted the police, but was unable to give a single reason why he had disposed of his son. So based on his confession, he was charged with murder. Briefly examined by a police doctor, no evidence of epilepsy or mental illness was found. And a second, equally disdainful doctor dismissed his grief as a motive, stating to the court... I have heard that he had trouble after losing his mother and father. A weak mind would very likely be upset by this sort of thing. So based on the analysis of two medical experts, he was declared sane and fit to stand trial. On Wednesday the 21st of February, just three days later, Harry Hartley was found by a river boatman, four miles downstream. Having died by drowning, laid naked on the cold marble slab at the Rotherhithe mortuary, Emma had to identify her baby boy. And although the last thing she could recall was the warmth of his breath as he slept, now devoid of life, the only colour on his frozen body was the little wisp of red hair. Charles Henry Mills was tried at the Old Bailey on the 2nd of April 1900. Giving no evidence in his defence, he pleaded his innocence, and although he was found guilty 
the jury overruled the doctors and declared him insane at the time of the murder. He was ordered to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure and having been committed to the infamous Bedlam Asylum, where his aunt had previously died. His fate is unknown. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. If you would like to learn more about the details about this case, as well as a few details which didn't make it into the final show, please join me for a tea, a cake and a waffle after the break. But before that, here's a promo for a true crime podcast which may fly the flag right up your flagpole. Morbidology is a weekly true crime podcast hosted by me, Emily G. Thompson, author of Unsolved Child Murders, Cults Uncovered, and co-author of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Cases Uncovered. 911 emergency. My son shot my husband. I need an ambulance. He's bleeding. Using investigative research combined with primary audio, including 911 calls, interviews, and trial testimony, Morbidology takes a look at some of the world's most heinous murders. Do you know why you're here? For a uh, home invasion gone terribly wrong. Listen to Morbidology today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you're listening. A big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Caroline Fern, Lucy Graham Cumming, Alan Ayrth, Derek Morrison, Heather Smith, Jason Abercrombie, and Victoria Redhead. I thank you all for becoming Patreon supporters. It's very much appreciated. Plus, a special thank you to Ray Mitchell for your very kind donation. I thank you. And Christina Marta for the very kind birthday gift. I'm feeling very spoiled. And also a big thank you to all of those lucky people who have upgraded their Patreon account to the new Handsome Hamlet tier. All of them are currently listening to my new weekly podcast, Walk With Me. Ooh, special. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Oh, Christ. Oh, let's hope I was recording. Yes, I was, and it was a long one as well. Oh, hello, everyone. Welcome to, I'm just going to move this out of the way, my uh, um, speaker thingy, uh, uh, muffler. Oh, there we go. Oh, dear. I always get to the end of that. I always do Murder Marvel's research written and performed by myself. And I always run out of steam with, a, with the main musical themes written and performed. But I always run out of air by the time I get to Eric's name. I always run out of air and I always have to redo it. Go. <gasps> it's like the opening on this, the opening with the... Uh, uh, I can't see. I can't remember the words. I've said it more than a hundred times, and I can't remember the words. But the intro at the start, I always, re- I have to do it in bits because I haven't got enough air in my lungs to be able to say the whole thing. Right, uh, let's go and make me a tea. Oh, cripes! Oh, my legs hurt. Right, water on, water on. Oh, windows open. Let's get some air in. Core lummy. Uh, hang on. Oh. Oh. Right. Oh, that's good. That's fresh air. I can feel it coming in, all that lovely, lovely fresh air. Oh, it's all right because it's nice and cold. It's relatively cold here, so it's uh, not too bad. It's when, it's when we get to the summer months and it starts getting hot and sweaty and I'm kind of trying to record this and I'm sweating and there's sweat pouring in my eye. Those are the days when I don't like it. Those are the days when uh, when we have those 38 degrees and we're all here going, oh my God, I'm dying, I hate it. Uh, right, so hello everyone, welcome to Extra Mile, we're back, we're back, that was third episode in uh, this season, hope you enjoyed that, that was uh, uh, one of those old ones. Uh, I have, oh I've got a treat for me today, I have, I have me a Belgian bun, of course I've got me a Belgian bun, yummy, yummy, yummy. Not a big Wenzel's one, although I did notice the other day that in Ealing, uh, where a lot of the, the episodes were based last week and the week before, um, there's a new Wenzel's opened up. They've got rid of the, the shitty old uh, 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 Phones For You office, uh, and they've put a Wenzel's bakery in there. Oh, yummy. So I might have to, I might have to accidentally do some more research in and around Ealing and pick up one of their big Belgian buns because they're nice and juicy. Uh, but I'm still trying to stick to my diet, still trying to be good. I haven't had any chocolate, which is pretty good. Uh, not having too much cake. I haven't bought biscuits in ages. So that's all all going well. And still sticking to my usual thing of kind of a, 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 my lunchtime treat. Either I'll grab some sushi, because that's always good for you. I like sushi. Or fish sticks. Now, fish sticks, crab sticks, those kind of... Uh, it's meant to be crab, but it's not. It's 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 a it's a white fish, but it's uh, it's very nice, and it's meant to look like crab's legs. I eat those; those do me. They're nice. They're, it gives you all the protein you need, all the all the goodies. And uh, even though I realised the other day that uh, uh, a pack of them that I eat is all of your salt for the day, I didn't realise that. So, uh, oh, anyway, coup update. Uh, 
not really much coot action going on at the moment. The, the, the canal seems to be full of very boring fishermen who don't seem to do anything. They just I, I, I'm not disrespecting people who like fishing. If you like fishing, good. It's, I'm sure it's very relaxing. But they don't seem to do anything. And they seem to spend a fortune on all this equipment just to, in the hope of catching a fish, and then they put it back. It's like, what's the point? What's the point in that? Uh, but it seems relaxing. I guess I'd say it's an escape and it's a bit of fresh air. I know, I know it's meant to be exercise, but it's not really exercise. You don't see any of them moving. They just seem to stand there. And what I don't get is quite a few of them are fishing and on their phone at the same time. It's like, why don't you just enjoy where you are? Oh, I don't know. I don't get fishing. There's quite a few of them who come around. They, they, I think they seem to fish near the boats because I think fish seem to like the dark underside of a boat. They seem to hide there quite a lot. So they they tend to fish near the boats. But what they do is they throw their rod in the, the line into the water for what seems to be like six seconds. Then they pull it out and move on. It's like, what? Yeah, I, I'm not a fisherman, but I'm sure the fish haven't uh, haven't seen your line yet and gone, oh, yeah, must grab that. I'm going to wait. I don't get it. I don't get it. Not a sport for me. I'm not a sports person anyway. Not that fishing's not a sport, really, is it? I think it's a pastime, isn't it? It's like it's like you know, at some point they they're, they're going to want it to be part of the Olympics. And it's like some of the new sports that are coming into the Olympics, and you just go, "That's not a sport. It's not a sport. It's a pastime. It's a hobby." Oh, anyway, uh, what else is going on? Uh, I'm just waiting for my tea to stew. Remind me to get my tea. Uh, uh, tours are hopefully returning uh, by the end of June because we're uh, lockdown is easing at the moment, but you know we're not we're not free and out of it yet. Uh, so I'm uh, even though I know people are going to be messaging me going, oh well, I've had my vaccine, so you should be doing tours now. Um, I'm not doing the tours until until a kind of end of June. I want to wait till everyone has had their vaccine. I want to wait till uh, everything is kind of open. I want to wait till restrictions are kind of right and we can legally do it. Uh, and also, you know, I still haven't been able to get home. I still haven't been able to see my dad and my stepmom. So that's been, that's over two years now. And that could be two and a half years by the time summer rolls around. So I don't want to ruin that just for the sake of someone having a little bit of fun so uh yeah so uh no private tours as well i know people who are oh, 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 you're not doing tours yet but what about private tours oh, i'll give you some money you can do a private tour oh that's all right oh, the virus can't get me if we do a private tour it's just the two of us that's all right uh no no private tours until everything starts so that so yeah that will be uh end of june start of july so that's that. Uh, Patreon is is all going well. If you uh, if you enjoyed the last two episodes, what I did was I, as always on Patreon, there's loads of photos. So I don't really I don't share a lot on social media. I kind of I because like Patreon is now kind of a main income for me. I got to really focus on that quite heavily. So they get a lot of photos that like. Uh, I did. I've been doing big, massive photo montages, especially with the last two episodes. Like all the locations, all the pictures that you need, uh, loads of videos, stuff that you'll never see anywhere else. Uh, I, I did a, a nice, interesting map to show you exactly the route where Alice had walked and, and things like that. So that's really good. And people, you can get that for just three dollars a month, which is literally two pounds in real money a month. You get unlike unlike some patrons. 
where they post once a week you pretty much depending on what tier you're on you pretty much get something every day but if you're even if you're only like uh, the the lowest tier the three pounds a month uh that is you get something on tuesday wednesday thursday yeah and you get you get quite a lot and you get uh, bag of goodies as well uh the new tier has been set up which is uh it's which as mentioned is called the handsome hamlet that's seven dollars a month which is about five pounds in real money and for that you get the new uh walk with me podcast there's already 11 episodes of that out and there's what so that comes out every saturday so that's good fun that's 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 you joining me on a little walk and i'm like i'm like getting rid of my rubbish and doing my shit not doing it shit but obviously doing my shit uh and then with we, i by that point i've edited the podcast so i can tell you what's gone in what's gone out uh i, I let you into little secrets about the, the kind of the editing and the things that everyone else will hear but they won't understand what that is and i'll kind of let you into that little secret as well so that's people seem to enjoy that it's, it's only half an hour and it's a little bit of fun uh, and with that, you get a new Murder Mile keyring as well when you subscribe to that, which is very exciting. So, uh, so let oh T right, we're just going to talk about the case, but uh, whoa, whoa, spilling my tea bag. Right, powdered milk time. Oh, there we go. That's good. Oh, powdered milk all around the edge of my tea. It looks like looks like cocaine. God, that would be good. Uh, oh, also, if you're uh, a subscriber to Walk with Me, you will learn about Dogger's Lane. Oh, excitement! Dogger's Lane. Oh yeah, I'll I'll have a little walk past Dogger's Lane tonight, and we can have a chat about that. So this case, um, this is another one of those cases that I kind of found ages and ages and ages ago like years ago uh but this was before the time when i, I thought to myself it's okay to do the old cases because as mentioned before i'd had kind of a worry that if i did really old p- cases people yeah, yeah I, I see it online do you know there's quite a few people who go oh, i don't like old cases oh, well i don't understand them you can't relate to the people which i always think if you're that kind of person that you say i don't like old cases i can't relate to the people you're not human it's like that's like saying if someone doesn't have a mobile phone and a spotify account i don't understand them it's like people are people it's when you break everything down it's it's people are just normal people and what all everyone wants is enough money to survive to be loved to you know to not have hardships you know we're very simple we, we need food we need sleep it's it's not complicated and you know if you can't I think if you can't relate to something like this story or 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 other stories that we've had before which are very similar like the horseshoe brewery one the the uh, beer flood or charlie chergwin the little the little baby who was you know frozen to death because his mum couldn't get a place in the work in the workhouse or as happened literally a year after this one the the james mills one which is the baby batterer of bedfordbury episode three which is one year later and literally a couple of streets away and weirdly mills same surname but no relation i did double check if you can't relate to those stories then something wrong with you there really is oh anyway I, that, that's why I, t- I try and make all these stories something you can relate to doesn't matter what era it is and the idea is that really you should hopefully forget that you're in a certain era because it's just people. It's about people. It's about, you know, the idea is to love them. Shouldn't matter whether they've got a Spotify account or not. I actually find the newer episodes, I don't like them as much. 
I find CCTV, yeah, it's interesting, it's fine, but it kind of ruins the detective element of the story. Do you know, uh, mobile phone signals, it's just like, oh, do you know, it's getting a bit, it's getting a bit, bloop, bloop. do you know when you see those detective dramas and it's it's like, I like the old ones like Columbo. Do you know, Columbo comes in, he, 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 he's got his dirt, he's got his wrinkled Mac on and do you know, you know full well that as he's walked into the room, he's assessed the scene, he's already worked it out in his head and he just needs to get the get the murderer to to kind of fall into his trap but he's playing he's playing the role of of kind of dimwit and all that and just one more thing which i love i love columbo but that's what i hate about the new things like the cs csi kind of do you know you have to have lasers in there bloop, 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 and computers going bloop, 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 and you know, screen and uh, like a, a screen will pop up going beep 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 and it's just like i hate all that it's like get back to the detective stuff get back to someone being a proper detective not bloop, 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 bloop. oh let's put it in the lab oh let's let's analyze this oh i just find that so tiresome it's like so um can't remember why i got to that point i was i was on a rant then anyway uh so let, let's do some details of uh this case that i uh might not end up in the episode uh um or, or, or kind of especially near the end there were things that i did kind of uh skim at the end because there was a bit of repetition in there um this is really annoying. I'd actually normally what I do is I get all my information. I put it into like a a, a a chronology. So I sit there and I spend ages and I get all the details and I put like all the victims' details and all that where they live and their early life and where they went to school and I put everything in an order and I can find so I can just re- reach and write and it, it's easy to work out. And normally what I do is copy it and put it at the bottom of when I'm writing. But what I realised is I hadn't done that this time, so I've erased. A lot of my, a lot of my research. So all I've got left is uh, what's already in the episode, uh, and uh, what I have left at the end. So pretty much everything is as it is. We don't really know a hell of a lot about uh, Charles's early life. Uh, I was going through the parish records and finding out a lot about his family, but obviously because they were so poor, they were going in and out of various workhouses. Uh, we got some of their medical records, so we know that he was an alcoholic. He was a labourer. We know that his mum. Um, his mum had some form of epilepsy, but that's the thing. It was kind of, it was epilepsy, but when she died, it was epilepsy slash dementia, but she, she was having, uh, various delusions and, you know, she'd, she'd become crippled as well. So, uh, it's, it, so no one really knows. And obviously cause she was poor, no one would have done like a, a proper autopsy on her to check. They would just be like, okay, she's dead shove her in the workhouse grave there we go a mass grave so there's not even not even a uh a headstone for them so that's quite sad so we don't know much we we know that he definitely um charles had we did he definitely had two brothers he may have had more but that's all we could find uh it's kind of irrelevant to the story anyway uh but quite quite a sad and tragic life obviously i found this story ages ago um stumbled across it oh that was the point i'd come up this was the point where uh kind of uh, i didn't think that people would really like old stories but actually these old stories are actually for those of us who like this kind of thing it's they're actually quite quite nice and sympathetic and actually you can you can have a lot more fun with them. I actually enjoy changing the tone of how I write with these. And I, I, I kind of, I, I become a little bit more poetic. I become a little bit more kind of, uh, kind of florid. And I enjoy, I try and 
bring back some of the wording of that era and make it, you know. So I, I, I kind of enjoy that. They're, they're, they're fun to write, I kind of find. Uh, and obviously, because because we don't know the exact words of what people say, I kind of have to use my imagination. So it's kind of like you get all the pieces of information together and the person says, this person was happy, this person was sad, this person was angry at this point about this money and this person wanted that. And even though they won't say exactly what the words are, or sometimes they will, you you have to kind of work out what the sentences are. So some, so you know, this is a dramatization, and sometimes the things that they say won't be accurate at all. But it's sometimes it will be as near as it can. We we do luckily with this, we do have quite quite a few moments where people heard what someone said. So I was able to kind of bring that back. Um, so. Uh, well, let's start with a bit where I, after he'd st- so he'd stolen the baby. Um, he still he never said why he stole the baby, what was on his mind at the moment. He was he was clearly outside twenty three Denmark Street, um, pacing for quite a while. He didn't seem to be angry. He seemed to be there for quite quite a long time. He was waiting for his uh, his girlfriend and his baby, and uh, you know he kept asking uh, Eliza Grinham, who was there. Uh, and her sister Emma, you know, um, uh, where's Emma? Where's Emma? And you know, uh, repeatedly saying that, but he didn't seem angry at any point. Anyway, he stole the baby. We don't know why, and he ran off in 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 a set direction. Um, so he did that about ten forty-five, about uh, eleven ten p.m., which m- it kind of makes sense around the around the time. Um, uh, PC Edgar Adams, uh, 209E, uh, he said that about 11.30, that timing is, is way off, but don't forget, this is nearer when, when you know, people wouldn't have had watches, really. They would have relied on clocks. Uh, he said, I was on duty on Charing Cross uh, on the Thames embankment. I saw the prisoner come on the embankment via Villiers Street carrying a baby. He seemed exhausted as if he had been running. He was coming towards me and turned left towards the water and I lost sight of him. Uh, he did not try to avoid me. He was about a mile from Denmark Street in Soho. Uh, well, it's not Soho, it's St. Anne's. Uh, hate to be pedantic. Um, he had to turn to one side or the other. He crossed over the road. There is a hoarding and he had to pass a small barrow. So actually a policeman saw him running with the baby towards the Thames, but but kind of lost him part way. Uh, as mentioned before, the weather around that had been uh, cold for uh, about eight weeks. Uh, that day, uh, it had been about minus three degrees, so the Thames was uh, incredibly icy. Uh, it had frozen over everywhere, was snowy and icy everywhere, so it was really nasty around there. Um, at 11.20pm on that Sunday night, so literally, literally like 10 minutes after he'd... he'd so, literally 10 minutes after he'd thrown the baby into the river um he'd walked to bow street police station and if you look at the route it is about between five to ten minutes so he literally did it and then walked straight to the police station there was no umming and ahhing uh constable bardle 112e um e is his division uh 112 is his police number uh on Sunday, February the 18th, I was standing at the police station door and the prisoner came up to me and said that he wished to give himself up for murder. He'd thrown his child into the water from the Thames embankment. He was not strange when he when he first came up to me. He was calm. I hardly believed him. I thought he, he had a dispute, had done it uh, 
for a bit of bravado. He said, I've had a lot of trouble lately and my head feels burning. That baby started crying and all of a sudden something struck him. Uh, Cross-examined, he said, yeah, the man definitely said uh, murder. I did not speak to him first. He asked for a cigarette. He talked in a connected way about uh, where he had been working uh, and I let him talk on. He said that uh, if his mother had been alive, it would not have happened. Uh, he talked about other subjects as well. Uh, he was with me for about half an hour, talking most of the time. I only answered him yes or no. He seemed a bit excited uh, and thought, and I thought he looked very strange. Um, but obviously when he had confessed to that, they obviously brought him into the police station. He was brought before... Uh, in, uh, Police Inspector Police Inspector William Crawford or the Metropolitan Plot obviously they're all out back drinking Guinness um, and watching Arsenal lose ooh what a burn uh, he said uh, uh, I was on duty at Bow Street at 11.50 when the prisoner was brought in he said he wished to give himself up into custody for murdering his child aged 7 months uh, I told him if he desired to say anything, it would be put down in writing and might be used against him. Uh, I took it down. Uh, he read it over himself and signed it. Uh, this is it. He said, I wish to confess that I have thrown my son, aged seven months, into the Thames from Victorian Bankment. He was dressed in a blue pelisse and cape. Its mother, Miss Emma Hartley, is living at 23 Denmark Street. I saw her about 11.05pm. That's incorrect. It was actually 11.45. Don't forget this. As mentioned, this is the era without watches. Uh, outside her residence. She had the child in her arms. I asked her to let me look after it. Uh, I took the child out of her arms and then I went down Endell Street to Old Compton Street. It's actually Compton Street being pedantic again St Martin's Lane to Victoria Bank and just past Waterloo Bridge where I threw the baby into the river and then I came away uh, it's it's kind of weird because he, he kind of gives many reasons why he thinks he did it and he's not too sure and kind of he says uh, after that statement had been made I, uh, the, the inspector says after that statement was made I sent for Miss Hartley who made a statement to me and then I charged the prisoner with murder he made no reply uh, but as he was leaving the cell he said I would not have done it but the mother of the child had worried me for money and I have been assaulted by her father so it's kind of you have three reasons in there already it's kind of he's saying that Emma was badgering him for money her father William had assaulted him but also he's saying um, if his mother hadn't died Therefore, the baby wouldn't have died. So there's three reasons in there already. Uh, the inspector said his manner was rational. I felt certain he was perfectly sane and that what he, w uh, what he had said was correct or I should not have taken it down. Uh, okay, sorry. Uh, just, just reading ahead. Hang on. Uh, he said to me he did not know why he did it he was very fond of the baby everyone concurs that he was kind of you know even though he'd gone a little bit weird near the end he always loved the baby he was always kissing it and hugging it and you know cuddling it and buying it little toys uh, it's kind of a very similar story as mentioned to the James Mills one if, if we listen to the baby battery of Bedfordbury and there's a lot of similarities between those two stories uh, he said uh, all of a sudden something came to me um 
and he said he would throw the baby into the Thames, that there was a burning in his head and probably he should get five years. That's him, him believing he should get five years in prison for, for what he's done. Uh, twice he's actually said, I expect I should get five years for this. Um, George Albert Hamilton was the divisional police surgeon at the time. He was called to uh, the Bow Street Police Station where he examined the prisoner who complained of pains in his head. Um, Dr. Hamilton said, Hamilton, stop, Hamilton, uh, said, I thought he was not quite right, but he spoke quite rationally to answer my questions. I suspected epilepsy. He was very pale and the pupils of his eyes were very dilated. Uh, that was the only occasion on which I saw him about seven, see this, seven hours after he was taken to the station. That's useful. Um, I got nothing to confirm my suspicions of epilepsy, but it struck me at the time. I did not speak to him about what he had done, only about his ailment. The inspector asked me if he was ill and I said he was quite fit to go to the magistrate, which he did. That uh, Obviously, uh, you go to the magistrate the next morning. That's a Bow Street Magistrate's Court or Police Court, as it was then. Uh, what else? Uh, uh, the inspector sent for me to know whether it was desirable for uh, the prisoner to remain in the police cells or to go to the infirmary. Uh, they felt it was fine for him just to remain in the police cells. Uh, as you can appreciate, uh, the, the police turned up, went to 23 uh, Denmark Street to find Emma, brought her back. And it was there that, uh, you know, her and her family had been frantically looking for the baby. It was there that she was told that, you know, the baby had been thrown into the Thames. Uh, obviously, there was a police search, but, um, you know, it's all iced over. The baby had almost certainly gone onto the ice, so they probably had to wait for it to uh, thaw. Uh, Charles was taken to uh, Bow Street Magistrates Court slash Police Court the next morning. Uh, uh, the inspector uh, asked him in the morning how he had slept. He said that he could not sleep. He had not slept at all. Uh, the prisoner's statement before the magistrate... Uh, um, see, it, it goes off on here as well. Miss Emma Hartley told me one or two lies. Uh, the first was, I did not blacken her eye. Well, you did. Uh, the second is... Uh, I have given her more than a shilling since since uh, the child was born. There was a whole bit in the kind of court case about how much money exactly he'd given to the child. It's It was inconsistent, especially after his parents died. His work record was all over the shop, so he was kind of on and off work, and he was still kept in employment, but, you know, his employer was kind of struggling. Um, uh, the body... So, uh, Wednesday, 21st of February, 1900, in the cold... The body had been in the cold water for three days, and it was discovered... Uh, on the banks of the River Thames on the south side in Rotherhithe uh, by John Langrove, who was a waterman uh, living in uh, Rotherhithe. Uh, he picked he picked up the body uh, and handed it in to John Weeks, who was a constable. Uh, and the constable took it to the parish mortuary in Rotherhithe, uh, which is in, uh, I think it's St Mary's Church. It's still there today. It literally, the, the mortuary had just been opened about five years before that. It was relatively modern for that era. Uh, but it's still there today. You can you can go into the St Mary's Churchyard. It's a little round building and you still see it there today. Um, uh, Alexander Grain, who was the uh, doctor, uh, he examined the body... Uh, uh, hang on. 
Uh, yeah, he made a post-mortem examination and the cause of death was drowning. He said otherwise it was a very healthy child. Uh, there was a uh, coroner's court inquest held uh, into the death of Harry Hartley. Um, and obviously they de- uh, determined, as always, it was an unlawful death. Now, this is the other examination of Charles Mills. I'm going to have a slurp of my tea by Dr. Scott. Great Scott. Oh, it's too milky. Um, So this was the second doctor who was brought in to kind of look at the the, the kind of the mind of Charles Mills to see what he was uh, about. And uh, he said, "Uh, I've had the prisoner under observation since February the 19th. He is weak minded and below of below the average of intelligence. It's weird. Anyone who seems to be poor, that's what they seem to say about all of them. He complained of pains in his head and giddiness. I could find no organic reason for the giddiness. I found no epilepsy at all. I have heard the family history. The cause of his aunt's malady is doubtful. Interestingly, because his aunt was sent to uh, Bedlam Asylum uh, and had the same symptoms. He is only 19 years old. I have heard that he has had trouble in losing his mother and father and was left alone. A weak mind is very likely to be upset by that. I have no indication of a blow on his head. Um... That's in reference to uh, he was hit over the hammer with uh, um, uh, when he was at work back in the August, like half a year before. But even with that, like uh, the, the, his employer at the time said, you know, he was taken to the hospital. Um, he was examined. Everything was fine. It just seemed to be a superficial wound. They 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 didn't need stitching. They just put a compress on it, and he was fine. Um, the death of his father and mother. Uh, when he was only earning eight she- eight shillings a week, would not improve his mind. No shit. I have heard what uh, Dr. Bardell said, uh, that he has given himself up to murder, and that he said, I shall expect to get five years for this. That does not fully account for his not appreciating what he had done. Uh, I came to the conclusion that his mind was confused when he was at the station and he was mentally upset. I think... He did know what he was doing, but did not appreciate it to the full extent. I have not heard the girl's father ask him to marry her. Hang on, I'm just wheedling my way through the rest of this because it goes. It does go on for a little while. Uh, let me just find some interesting things. Uh, I gave no particular attention to the prisoner. In strict conformity with my duty, I watch all the persons who are to be charged with a crime. I think the prisoner knows at present what he has done and that it was wrong. His mind is below the average. I should not at any time have felt justified in giving a certificate that he was insane. Uh, I cannot see anything in the evidence which would justify me in curtailing his liberty. Weak-minded people are very likely to act on impulse. Lovely, what what a lovely man. Uh, So, as mentioned, the trial was held at the Old Bailey on the 2nd of April 1900, and he was indicted for the charge of uh, the murder of Harry Hartley. Uh, It it was said uh, he was uh, very nervous, uh, and he, by that point, he had fully realised the gravity of the charge. Uh, In court, Emma Hartley was asked to identify a little pile of the baby's clothes, which has been found. Obviously, as you can expect, she broke down into tears. Uh, Charles did not give evidence in his defence at his own trial, and he was ordered to be detained by Her Majesty's pleasure. 
Uh, obviously, this is the final year of, of Queen Victoria's life. Um, so he was sent to Bedlam, which is a Bethlehem host, host, hospital, um, which is the the rather infamous insane asylum, which is also where we get the phrase, uh, you know, when everything's Bedlam, ev- meaning everything's gone a bit crazy. Uh, that's where we get that from. Uh, so uh, unfortunately, we don't know anything more after that. He was listed as as, as going in, but nothing's coming out. There's nothing on the kind of the records uh, to say when he died. Do you know, he just he just kind of disappears. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we have lost a lot of records over the years, especially during during the war. So uh, that's missing. Uh, as for Emma Hartley, um, she uh, became a domestic uh, servant not too far away uh, over on Tottenham Street. Uh, her family had moved away from Denmark Street uh, the the year after that. Uh, I've searched uh, kind of her sisters and all things like that. The, the, there's no details of her uh, getting married or having further children. So uh, unfortunately, she just kind of disappears as well. It, it's likely that she probably, she almost certainly would have got married. So therefore, she's changed her name. Therefore, it's it's kind of difficult to track her down. But unfortunately, that's that's the end of their story. So... Ooh, burps. So I hope you enjoyed that. That was uh, something, something, uh, something a little bit sad. Uh, I've no idea what next week's episode is. I think it's a two-parter. I think, yay, everyone who loves, everyone who loves multi-parters, yay. People who listen to uh, this to it and go, oh, hey, when you do two parters, it means I have to wait. Well, tough titties, <laughs> tough titties. It's a two-parter next week, I think. It could be, I might not be, I don't know. I have no idea. Anyway, I've got to go and edit this. God, tired already. Got to edit this. Uh, I'm going to try and get it done. Then I'm going to do some cycling, uh, probably on Saturday, and film the locations and the, all the pictures uh, for the next couple of episodes, and then put them on Patreon. So if you subscribe to pay, Patreon, you get those. Oh, exciting. Anyway, that's me done. Hope you enjoyed that. That was that episode. Uh, I'm now off to edit this. Have yourself a good week. Be good. Stay safe. Lots of love. Bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. 
juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.